Yeah, this is the metaverse, huh? Just getting trolled by a 12 year old. <laughs> you can't do nothing about it. All those muscles didn't do shit for you, John. <laughs> All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Only an American. This podcast is designed for um, intermediate and advanced English learners who want to improve their comprehension and vocabulary skills through natural conversations utilizing American English. What makes these podcasts more um, comprehensible, if you guys are having issues understanding what we're saying at the speed we're saying it, is the ability to read the transcripts. So check the link in the description down below for a free complete transcript of this podcast. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about crypto, NFTs, and uh, the life of our friend Austin. And he also has his own radio station. It's called Filmoverse Radio. Um, so check him out on YouTube. <laughs> Slow you that down. Say that one more time. More. What is it? Filmoverse Radio. Filmoverse. Right? FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And uh, Filmoverse is a token created by the artist Pac. So we can uh, talk a little bit about that, but yeah, so it's FOMOverse radio and that's on YouTube. I also have a Twitter. Come uh, check it out guys. Yeah, that's cool. Very interesting name. Yeah. Very creative. Were, we're going to be going over more like basic stuff today. So if you guys want to like go down the rabbit hole, that's definitely the place to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Check him out. Cause we're going to have. Uh, some like John said, basic questions. I don't know shit about shit when it comes to the internet. <laughs> I struggle to get onto this podcast uh, on a regular basis, so um, you're gonna have to break it down for us, dummy style. Any listeners out there that want more, check his page out. <laughs> so first off, Austin, how long have you been kind of in the crypto NFT space? Yeah, so. Um... I've been around crypto seriously since, I would say, 2019. Um, I've heard of crypto since about 2014, uh, when Bitcoin was about, I would say, about $400 to $700 range when I first heard about it. Um, <clears throat> my cousin and I stumbled upon Bitcoin uh, through what's called Silk Road. And that was a website where you could buy basically anything. Uh, a lot of it was illegal. Um, so, you know, we heard about it through that alley. Um, you know, we didn't really quite know how to buy it. Uh, back then, they had an exchange that you could buy it, sort of like a stock exchange like Robinhood today. Um, that was called Mount Gox, G-O-X. Um, that was later shut down by the FBI. Um, because they found out that they were involved in illicit uh, legal buying um, of illegal goods. And so they shut that down. People that bought and had Bitcoin on that exchange, Mt. Gox, um, lost everything they had. Most people uh, couldn't get anything back since the founder, uh, Charlie Shrim, actually got arrested and put into jail for a while. So anyways, uh, back to me getting into it in 2019. I took it very seriously when one of my friends told me just to put $100 into Bitcoin. And so I did. I uh, sat on it for a while. Um, one day I woke up. I want to say it was about 2020, right when COVID hit or right before. 
and it spiked up about 25%, which I was pretty impressed because, you know, 25% move on anything is pretty huge uh, nowadays. So just to think, you know, something increasing 25% in less than a year was just amazing to me. So I really went down the rabbit hole. I uh, got into uh, YouTube channels, started watching some more stuff. You know, what is Bitcoin? And um, just reading some literature about Bitcoin and what other cryptocurrencies are. And that's kind of what uh, where I'm at today. So thank Can you, you still me. buy illegal stuff with Bitcoin? Is there uh, still a space on the dark web for it? Is that still the currency or no? You know, I, I'm sure there is, if you look hard enough. I really have never looked into it. I've just heard about it. So I really wouldn't be a good person to ask if there was illicit stuff going on in the dark web. Hmm. I know there's websites for, like, steroids and stuff that you have to use Bitcoin mm. to buy. Don't ask me how I know. But. <laughs> John's over here just getting ripped, and he's like, don't ask me how I know how to buy steroids. I've never done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. So one of the most common misconceptions about Bitcoin is the privacy. Uh, a lot of people think that, you know, you can send Bitcoin A to B and it not be traceable, which that's 100% not true. Um, Bitcoin and most other cryptocurrency assets are very trackable and are actually preferred um, through tracking if some money laundering is going on. Uh, by the FBI and the CIA uh, due to the visibility and the um, just the trackability from the point A to point B. It's uh, much easier to trace than any sort of cash or any sort of foreign bank accounts that, I don't know, maybe uh, just your regular Joe Blow wouldn't have access to. Man, you just crushed my BC and D life plans all in one short snippet right there. <laughs> now... So how is how is crypto track traceable then? Um, so the, there's plenty um, websites that show uh, transaction data. One of them uh, that I use a lot is uh, etherscan.io. Um, you can uh, copy and paste transaction hash, which is basically just numbers and letters going back to the transaction. Um, so every transaction is recorded on the blockchain. You would kind of refer to it as like a digital or public ledger. So everything from when Ethereum or the cryptocurrency was first born has been recorded. And you could easily go back and look at all the history and transactions and go back to um, who created the wallet, when, what, where. And that would tell you um, who made it and what country it was in and easily be identifiable through just a couple simple checkers. So do you think in the near future, um, the more cyber type uh, currencies are going to take over a large portion of investments? Like you think that you're going to, we're going to start seeing a decline in people investing in the stock market or more traditional investments and moving more towards this crypto because uh, recently John got me interested in uh, 
real estate investments. And so I've been following a lot of different programs on that. And one of the programs that I was listening to talked about uh, these guys that were doing real estate investments and they were using NFTs to find investors. And what they were doing was they would basically take pictures of the home that they wanted to either buy or remodel or uh, use for long-term investments. And they were selling that photo as an NFT, which gave that person ownership in the investment. Do you see like a huge variety of things that people are going to be able to start doing with this? Or do you think it's going to kind of stick to the basic um, investment that it has been? Yep. So that brings a really good topic up, Alex. Um, You know, are we going to see less and less capital flow into, you know, what you would say the traditional stock market or real estate versus digital currency and cryptocurrencies? So, Uh, Kind of the things that I look at is the total market caps, uh, particular stocks. You know, you can look at the total market cap of the crypto. uh, All of cryptocurrency is ranging right now, as of June 3rd, between 1.1 trillion to 1.36 trillion. So that means that Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, Dogecoin, everything combined is worth about 1.3 trillion. Um, so just take that number in mind. Um, so one one trillion. You look up what the total market cap of real estate is. This is all the world's real estate. Um, it was um, about three hundred and twenty six trillion back in twenty twenty. So just kind of comparing the two, um, looking at it from that aspect, cryptocurrency is just kind of a nuisance compared to real estate. Um, also comparing it to the stock market, uh, total market cap of all publicly traded companies in 2020 was about 93 trillion. So you're talking cryptocurrency has basically like a 1% say, um, and even less than that in real estate. So it's really not going to have like a, an impact yet. Um, once you see a lot more capital come in, you know, people that are wealthy, you know, 10 million plus people that are super wealthy, 100 million plus. Once you see those kind of people coming in, uh, putting some serious, serious capital into crypto and Bitcoin, I think you're going to see just a lot of range bound pricing. Uh, You know, you see it today. There's, you know, Bitcoin goes up and down. Same with Ethereum and a lot of the other cryptos. But until we get a, a much larger market cap, we're, we're just going to continue like how we are today. So something that I've heard from quote unquote investment pros is that crypto is a bad investment for several reasons, mainly to do with the volatility of the investment. Um, do you think that's keeping a lot of those big investors that you're talking about from bringing all this capital into, into the, the market? Or do you think that it's just a matter of time before it happens. So a lot of investors um, could be possibly scared off by the volatility. Um, they want to, you know, if you're investing millions and millions of dollars, you're you're wanting to put it in something that's, that's as least risky as possible. Um, so, you know, based over long-term data, cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin, has showed to... 
um, dramatically increase in price year over year. Um, you would think that they would go towards cryptocurrency, um, but there just hasn't been enough sufficient data and enough sufficient research for these larger companies to come in and actually um, get the access and the approvals to deploy this kind of capital. A lot of the bigger companies have to go through a very rigorous process to uh, invest their monies. And this is uh, government regulated. This is something that they need uh, SEC approval, especially if they're publicly traded. And uh, it's just mm -hmm. much harder to get into uh, what you would call a speculative asset versus maybe the S&P 500 or something that is a little less volatile year over year. Okay. So uh, do you think outside of all the legal obligations, do you think that people are having a hard time with it because it's so new comparatively to the you know stock market and real estate investments? Those things have been around for hundred plus years, you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And then we have this new thing that's, that's not based by any tangible item. So do you see a lot of people in the older generation, which is the generation that holds the majority of the wealth, they're still having a hard time seeing the value in it? I think that anytime you're going to have a new technology, people are going to be a little speculative before they actually get into it. And I think over time, as, uh, you know, digitalization gets more and more popular, especially throughout the world, I think we're going to see um, just, you know, generations that are below us, just the cryptocurrency will become native to them. Um, and you can already see it today, like our generation before us, you know, five, 10 year olds, they're playing their iPhones. Uh, tablets that they're using this digital currency that's native to the game and they're collecting these yeah. treasure tokens so they can buy things and you know what that's all they know that's you know that's what they do every day that's what they think is valuable in their mind so they're going to look at adopting digital currency as well in their daily lives once they mature and get to that age yeah i mean i can't imagine like our nephews with the way that their mindset is and the way they play video games and watching them and having them explain to me what Minecraft is and how you mine for all of this different stuff. I mean, that is preparation in my mind for Bitcoin, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I was saying, these kids are digitally native growing up. They're playing these games and collecting these coins and tokens. So, they're going to be transferring that over to their daily lives once they get older. And um, you can already see now, like everyday lives, like you go into the grocery store, maybe they don't accept cash. So, I mean, we're using money that the bank is actually saying that we have. So, I mean, you could already say that we use digital currency. I mean, Apple Pay is digital currency. When you transfer that over to somebody, that's considered digital. It's not actually physical. So yeah, I mean, I realistically, think, uh, all of our debit and credit cards are digital currency. And if you went to the bank, that money's not actually there. <laughs> you know, at least not a majority of it's all reinvested into something else. If you invested or if you went to the bank today and you put in $1 million, first of all, they're going to have you fill out a whole bunch of paperwork. Uh, second of all, they're going to ask you questions. When, what, where, how'd you get this? 
Third of all, I guarantee you, you went back the next day, you couldn't get that million dollars back. So oh, yeah, it's 100%. Just, it's, you know, gone. It's, it's gatekeepers, you know, institutions, governments have a big say in the banks. You know, banks can't really do things they want to do unless the government is is okaying it. So, I mean, you can compare crypto and the banks as in banks are controlled and crypto is controlled by the people. So it's yeah, I'm a, sure the government has a big problem with that. They, they really do. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about it amongst legislation. Um, they're been constantly updating the tax laws on these different kind of assets, as well as uh, what kind of regulations that they're trying to put on crypto. There's a lot of talk going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's actually net positive that the government's talking about it. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to see large capital flowing in from a uh, big institution and actually maybe even some banks. Do you think so you, you said something you said something interesting there that that crypto is controlled by the people? Um, I've heard that, you know, nobody knows who created Bitcoin and things like that. But how is it that crypto is controlled by the people if there is one central creator of the, the cryptocurrency? OK, John, that's a uh, that's a pretty common question. I, I like that. It's pretty basic. Um, so how is Bitcoin controlled? Um, can be directed by the miners. Um, so basically, Bitcoin is made by uh, computers uh, solving this long equation. And so every time a computer um, solves this equation, they get what's called a reward. And Bitcoin was programmed day one to reward its miners at a set amount before what's called the Bitcoin halving. So Bitcoin halving is a programmed uh, halving that happens every four years. Um, and that four years is just based off of how many uh, Bitcoin or mined over time. And that can easily be found out through um, how many Bitcoin are being mined per day. So um, essentially every four years, the Bitcoin reward gets cut in half. Uh, right now, if you mine Bitcoin, um, you get about, I believe it's 6.2 Bitcoin. Um, Whoa, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a shit ton of <laughs> well, money. So, so it sounds like a lot of Bitcoin. Um, these miners or computers that are solving these problems are, are very expensive. Um, the cost of electricity can be very high to run these Bitcoin miners. And there's actually a lot of companies that uh, team up uh, with Green Solutions currently at the time. And uh, they are mining at a uh, more cleaner uh, rate than they actually used to. So that's another thing that the government has recently that's so uh, funny. regulated. Yep. That brings such a reality to it of, of there's all this internet Bitcoin that you have to mine and there's algorithms and it's all this very confusing stuff. But at the end of the day, there's these massive warehouses that have computers in them that have electrical bills and have an overhead and all of this stuff Absolutely. that brings a very real life aspect to this untangible idea. Um, it makes it a business, basically. 
Oh, absolutely. And there, there's plenty of uh, companies that actually compete and uh, run mining rigs against each other to um, try to solve these problems. So um, there, there's actually quite a few companies here in the U.S., mostly in Texas and a lot of the uh, western states that are uh, mining these things. And it's a pretty profitable uh, business. Most of these Bitcoin miners... They would actually supply the exchanges and people that want to buy Bitcoin uh, because they have overhead costs. They have to pay for things. So it's uh, it's actually good that they sell uh, the Bitcoin that they are mining. Um, so that way people can buy it. There There's exchanges that have the uh, Bitcoins on the market because the uh, thing is, is if there is no Bitcoin to uh, buy, then you're going to see prices dramatically increase. And uh, that's that's just not a good thing long term. So the mining aspect, is that something that you have to have a massive warehouse and a bunch of supercomputers to do? Or can the average person start mining for Bitcoin? Obviously, you're not going to do it at the same rate, but can you do it? So there is ways that you can do it. Um, there's uh, miners rigs. They look like big computer towers. They're called ASIC rigs. You can find them on various websites, eBay, for about 5,000 USD. Um, you can plug that in. Your electricity will go up. So essentially, uh, what your what the best case scenario is, you're taking the electricity that you're paying to run this miner and you're turning it into Bitcoin. Um, so every time you buy Bitcoin, there's fees and everything that go with it. So at this rate, you know, if you're mining some Bitcoin over time, it may be more cost effective, cost effective to actually mine it than just buying it. Um, if you only had one miner, it's probably not going to be that effective if you're trying to establish a bitcoin position um, if you had maybe let's say five to ten miners um, which would dramatically increase your electricity bill that might be pretty cost effective uh, but you know most people most individuals it's probably if you're not going to have like a business and, a, and a, a whole room in your house dedicated to it, it's probably best to just buy on exchanges and and uh, go from there. So has there been any backlash on the energy usage for this, this style of platform? Because for such a new age style of investment, it's uh, kind of counterproductive to all of the energy saving um, uh, mindset of the world right now, you know, like the environment and uh, saving as much energy as possible and using all of these renewable energies. And, um, are people upset with the way that you have to, to use so much energy to get Bitcoin? Um, are they trying to come up with an alternative? Has anybody even ever brought it up? So that's actually one of the main topics that went down recently at Bitcoin conference was clean energy and mining Bitcoin. Uh, most of the people previously that were mining Bitcoin, um, mainly in China, were using a lot of coal burning techniques. And this has proved to show some negative side effects, um, you know, depending how you look at it to the atmosphere. 
now. So that has transpired over to the United States EPA and has actually, um, they are working with Bitcoin mining companies to figure out cleaner solutions. So you have, I can, I know a company right off the bat named by uh, Jason Williams going parabolic. He has a company that recycles tires and uses some of the uh, energy from the recycled tires to mine Bitcoin. So this just this is a one small mm -hmm. example of somebody that's using alternate energy to mine Bitcoin and clean energy. And you'll just see more companies in the future follow the same uh, same pattern. Okay, that's interesting. Is he burning tires? What is he? Yep. So I believe he he's that? burning the tires and then. Uh, like capturing the fumes and uh, running that through a mm. uh, some sort of generator into creating energy to mine Bitcoin. Wow, sending smoke signals everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, obviously, I don't think any of us know the science behind that. That's a totally different subject, but no. it does seem interesting yeah. that in order to save the environment, we're going to burn something that's toxic. Yeah, I'm sure if he's capturing the fumes and stuff and it's not getting out, though. Um, I mean, they're engineers. They probably put a lot more time into it than <laughs> <Yeah>. us. But <laughs> So, Austin, you were mentioning earlier, uh, you said Bitcoin and Ethereum um, and things like that. I very, at a basic level, know that the differences between the two. But um, what makes cryptocurrencies different and why is one cryptocurrency more valuable than another? So what makes Bitcoin and Ethereum different? Uh, easiest way to look at it is there are two different kinds of cryptocurrency. Um, if you just go down devil in the details, their codes are written differently. So as you can kind of like compare two different kind of phone companies, you know, they are a phone company, but they're, you know, like Verizon and Sprint. Um, they they do kind of the same thing. They serve the same kind of purpose, but their functions and their their technology and the people that surround and support them can be different. Um, so the the main thing you you want to see between Bitcoin and Ethereum is Bitcoin was um, or you could say it is the first uh, cryptocurrency that was created back in two thousand nine, right after the financial collapse. Um, the banks taking bailouts, uh, anonymous guy by the name Satoshi Nakamoto wanted to create a better financial system. And by this, he created a digital currency called Bitcoin. And so once Bitcoin was made, um, a lot of people uh, took a part of it and they really wanted to learn more about this currency. And so you had this guy named Vitalik Buterin that got around with some hackers, uh, some big time gamers. Don't think it was in the United States. I believe it might've been in Russia or somewhere like that. Sounds they, very uh, Russian. <laughs> right. Vitalik they, uh, I read a book about it. It's called, uh, I'll, I'll have to look into it. Um, so they all uh, teamed up and these 11 guys in this house and created a spinoff of Bitcoin. Uh, this is called Ethereum. So that was the number two. Um, I would say that's the largest second cryptocurrency. 
Um, there actually was going back thinking about it. Uh, there was one called Master Coin um, that took place in between and a couple of these other failed projects. Um, so Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are basically like the first and second one. Um, so uh, Ethereum is different um, because Ethereum now is switching over to what's called proof of stake. Um, so there's there's two different kind of ways that there's crypto. So there's uh, proof of work, which means that um, miners are creating the cryptocurrency and um, that's kind of what's keeping the cryptocurrency afloat because they are selling off, people are buying it, and that's what's that's what's creating this market. So that's proof of work. That's Bitcoin. Now Ethereum is proof of stake. Now um, that's the Ethereum 2.0 that maybe you guys have might have heard about. You're like, what is ETH 2.0? Uh, so they're moving their system from proof of work to proof of stake. So essentially, the people that are staking their Ethereum, that's going to essentially validate this uh, Ethereum. They call them nodes, and basically they're just double checkers that the transaction is not uh, double spending and that it is legit Ethereum. And, uh, you know, they figure out all the, the minor fees and everything. So, so if... if Proof of work creates Bitcoin through solving the hash rates. How does proof of stake create Ethereum? So once they move over to proof of stake, um, they're not going to be mining any more Ethereum. Um, it's just going to be a set amount. And um, you, you could say that that would be net positive because it would uh, there would only be so much of it. But... Um, some some may argue that this proof of work may turn out to be more of a uh, long term um, positive. Oh, what you call it? Something that keeps evolving, something that really stays competitive over time, versus something that's already found its limits and there's just no more to it after that. So I don't know. There's a big argue and debate which one's better and what's the better way and. A lot of environmentalists would prefer the proof of stake because, you know, they're not having to spend energy to make it anymore. And uh, there, there's a debate. I, I'd prefer not to really get into that stuff, but I don't know. I, I, yeah, I no, just prefer Bitcoin. Bitcoin because there's only going to be 21 million ever made. Um, every four years, the uh, minor rate gets cut in half. So by 2024, miners are only going to get like 3.1 something Bitcoin per block. And typically when every time it halves, historically, the prices jump from 2 to 3x of the previous all-time highs of the previous cycles. So you can pretty much guarantee um, you will make a, a pretty nice return over time. Now, is that their way of controlling awesome. inflation? Is that kind of the safeguard? Is that why they've done that? So, yeah. So this uh, this was Satoshi Nakamoto's vision was a money that, um, you know, is only going to be, there's only going to be so many and it can never be um, changed. There can never be more Bitcoin ever made than 21 million. 
So, wow. so I do want to, I do want to touch on NFTs because I know this is your specialty. You've actually <laughs> absolutely crushed it in NFTs. So, I know very little about this. Um, could you tell me what an NFT is? Yeah. So just just to dumb it down, uh, NFT stands for non fungible token. Um, what that is is essentially it's a a digital image picture you could call it a jpeg or a gif that is actually minted into the ethereum blockchain or whatever cryptocurrency blockchain uh, you prefer to mint it on and it's made accessible to the public uh, for trading over the blockchain so i have a question because i'm very interested in photography how do you make an NFT, like how do you get one of your photos, or how, how do you how do you bring it into the NFT world? Yeah, so there is websites that you can go on to, and you could upload a any type of image that you have on your computer, phone, whatever, and you could throw that online. Uh, you could take that uh, data and offer that on websites such as Nifty Gateway, OpenSea. Um, those are marketplaces, sort of like eBay, Facebook. Um, they're just digitally native websites that allow you to buy these digital tokens. Um, the nice thing about NFTs is the fungibility. Um, you can take them with you um, across the ocean. You can take them with you um, in the car where you go every day because it's a picture that lives inside of a code. And this code is not physical. So it's, it's very safe um, if you know how to secure it properly. And it's very transferable. You can offer these products around the world. And you don't have to rely on people uh, making mistakes on shipping your art. Or maybe somebody um, might not believe it's true, but it, it carries that proof of authenticity with it. And you can go back and look at the code, see what artist made it, see how much was paid for it, and see who's owned it. So that's just kind of some of the uh, benefits of NFTs versus traditional art. Um, NFTs are relatively new. You know, the first one came out, and I want to say 2016, 2017. Known Origin, X Copy, um, some very older artists, Coldy. Um, these are some of the first artists to actually uh, become digital artists. And um, it's just a new era. Some would argue that, you know, modern art is, uh, you know, Picasso and uh, Salvador Dali and some of these other artists where, you know, I would, I would say that modern art is what current art is. So I would, I would say that modern art is NFTs and uh, you know, you can, uh, looking forward, I'm just very interested to see where uh, where art goes from here. So, how do you? Who sets the price and who sets how many get sold? Is that the artist? So, pre-sale, the artist will set up how much that they would like to offer their works for, and uh, secondary market people will go in and buy these artworks, and then uh, the second secondary mark would determine how much these are going for. So let's say if the artist decides that 
Um, I'd like to sell all these at $1. And everybody goes in and buys these pieces of art for a dollar out of 20. And let's say somebody, only one person says, okay, I'm selling this for 5000 There's only one for sale. Somebody sees value in it. They buy it. Boom. The next person says, I want to sell it for ten grand." They can come in and buy it. Boom. And then maybe nobody wants to sell it because it's, it's value to all of them. And so maybe you see some people that really want it. So they'll, you know, make a crazy offer, $30,000. So it, it just depends on, you know, the, the people that are holding it. Um, it depends on the people that are long-term believers versus flippers, and uh, which I think are really healthy for the market. So I don't know. I mean, you just, my thing is, and- is I, the, the NFTs that I bought, uh, I bought a lot of them early on when this technology first came out. Um, and I've grown um, attached to these artists and attached to these pieces. So it's more of an ass. It's more of just an asset to me. I actually um, see some of these it's pieces. It's like a personal more, thing to you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more of like a relationship thing and, and kind of like a status thing. So, I mean, you, you can look at it at a couple ways. You could, you could buy an art piece because you like it, or you could buy an art piece because somebody told you to buy it, or you can buy an art piece because, you know, you see value in it down the road. So I just try to look at it as all different ways. Um, certainly, you know, in crypto and and in nfts you want to make money but i just i think people got to do a little bit more research a little bit more book reading and and just dive into the details a little bit more before investing anything yeah for sure what so what is something when you go to buy an nft what is something you look for that kind of stands out as bringing um like making it worth your time some things I look for um, when I'm purchasing an NFT is how long the artist has been in the um, been in the game for. I'm not really interested in buying new art, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you just <clears throat> at that point, I mean, if if you're buying new art, you must really really like it first of all because. Uh, you're just being very speculative at that point. Second of all, um, other than buying it because I know the person's been in the game for a long time, um, I look at the plan down the future. Um, I like art that has utility, and that might sound crazy because some people, some collectors might say that art is the utility. But there, there has been multiple artists that I have collected from that either A, they made this crazy mechanism that you would have never imagined that you're participating in. And B, I think that mechanism that they're creating this utility for is like a brand new technology. So I bought several pieces, uh, actually dozens of these pieces uh, by, the, by the artist named Pak. Um, he's originally a Turkish artist uh, and an unknown artist. Nobody actually knows its identity. And uh, it, it did something very interesting. So uh, originally he uh, teamed up with a company called Sotheby's, which is a art uh, world worldwide renowned art auction. And they came out with this piece called um, The Fungible. 
And the fungible is these cubes, uh, three-dimensional cubes that are NFTs. And once they came out, they were going for $500. And <clears throat> when I first seen these things, they just blew me away. Just how they looked, how simple they were. And just you could just tell there was something special about them. Now, every five cubes that you bought, they wouldn't be individual cubes. It would be a five cube. And you would get one picture of a five cube. And every 10 that you bought, it would be 10 of these cubes combined, not 10 of these individuals, and so on and so forth. Well, come to find out, you could actually take that NFT cube and you could burn it uh, for a cryptocurrency called Ash. And so Ash had its own value as a cryptocurrency, and the uh, cube had its own value as uh, in, in terms of USD because collectors wanted to buy it and either share it, keep it, or maybe burn it. So at the hype of the cubes, I want to say one cube ended up getting to about $38,000 USB for one One cube. cube. Or you could, uh, this was interesting here because um, there there was what's this this thing called arbitrage. So uh, what people were doing is they were actually burning the cubes and the ash was worth more than what they could buy them for. So they would burn it for ash, sell the ash, and then buy another cube and just keep repeating that same cycle. And then at the end, they would have way more than what they started with. So there was uh, a few people that figured this thing out. Um, it didn't last very long, but uh, now cubes have settled and, and since cryptocurrency ash has settled as well. But it's just, it's it's these things that are like leading edge technologies that really intrigue me and especially when it has to do with art because it's something that we look at, something beautiful, it, it speaks to us and, and that's just some of the things that I look for when I'm buying. Utility. Right. So I heard about this this deal like the metaverse or the meta world and it's kind of the VR world that people are saying is coming and a lot of you can like purchase land it's like sims the old game sims and you can purchase land or buildings or have own a own a business or whatever and do you know anything about that do you use crypto for that because I guess a lot of celebrities are buying like oceanfront property in the metaverse type <laughs> shit. <laughs> They're spending a lot of money doing it. Yeah, Snoop, yeah, Snoop Dogg. He bought, he spent like $100,000 or more on a piece of property yeah, in the metaverse. Yeah, what the fuck is that about? <laughs> so, what? yeah. So people I, are I, bored. So I've dabbled a little bit in the, with, what you could say, the metaverse. Um, I have a lot of friends online that do that kind of stuff. I've actually, uh, because I got this one NFT from a famous artist named Blau, it's actually spelled three and then L-A-U, like Blau, Justin Mm -hmm. Blau. Um, So one of his NFTs is if you bought it, it would actually give you access to his house in the metaverse. So I went there in the metaverse on my computer and it's, it's cool. It's like the Sims, you know, you can walk around, jump around and look at cool things and listen to music and stuff and, you know, type to other people. But um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of cool. It's like playing games. I mean, if you're a a gamer and into that kind of stuff, that's cool. But 
Um, Do you think this you know, is I, actually going to catch on? I, I Do you think, think we're, it's just gonna we're be really like going to get to the point it's going to be a fad? Uh, where it's at now, like the Sims kind of game setup, I think that's kind of like a small niche cliche of people. Um, I do think that VR will um, increase in usage, and I think that will be a, a big thing later. But I don't think it's going to look like anything that we can imagine right now. So, I can tell you right now, I will not fit in the world. <laughs> Everybody's going to be walking <laughs> around with these goggles on. I'm just going to be sack tapping them as I walk past. <laughs> no, I've heard some interesting conversations about that. And going back to the real estate point, um, like if in, in the case that the metaverse did catch on and people were living, spending more time in the VR, um, interacting with others like that, they would require less square footage. So it, it would affect real estate as like people are looking for like smaller apartments and things like that because they spend their time in the metaverse where they can have as square much square footage as they want real estate yeah. as they want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I've heard some interesting opinions on that, but I guess we'll just have to how, how weird is the world going to be if if we get to the point where everybody's just some fat fucking slob secluded in their house with a VR headset on? Well, I was playing. I have a friend that has one of those uh, those new Oculus, mm-hmm. and on the Oculus is a Top Golf game. So you're at like a Top Golf range. That sounds kind of cool. It's like the metaverse. It is kind of cool, but it's like the metaverse where there's strangers in the stall next to you, like hitting, and they're online, and you can hear them through the speaker. And there's this little fucking kid that kept hitting my ball. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting so pissed, man. In the metaverse, he wouldn't let me hit it. He's like, he could like reach over or whatever and tap Knock your it ball out of the way. With his golf club. So I like, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was trippy for sure. But I was like, man, this is the metaverse, huh? Just getting trolled by a 12 year old. You can't do nothing about it. All those muscles didn't do shit for you, John. <laughs> uh, awesome, man. Well, we're about 50 minutes now. So uh, we're going to have to get, have you back on at some point and kind of go more in depth and stuff because we definitely have a yeah, lot Yeah, we more never questions. got to the you part. Um, we, were so, we were so focused on all the uh, crypto. We we never got to talk about you. I don't even know you yet, man. Oh, that's okay. Had an hour long conversation <laughs> with you. Don't know a damn thing about you. You don't need to know about me. I'm Austin, and I got my own radio show. And nice to meet you guys. Yeah, well, plug your <laughs> yeah. radio show and plug your you know all your Instagram and everything. Um, let everybody know what you're about. Well, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Austin Hamilton, H-A-M-B-E-L-T-O-N, or uh, FOMOverse Radio on Twitter, YouTube. Uh, you guys can DM me, send me a link, whatever. I might not click on it, but um, just say me, say what's up. And <laughs> yeah, I'm always here to answer any questions or share any thoughts, ideas. Love to uh, talk about whatever. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, we're also going to throw a link to his YouTube channel down in the description. So if you guys want to go more in depth on that, um, definitely check him out. Cool. Yeah. Make sure you cool, guys. Man. Well, I appreciate Absolutely. your time. Make sure you guys like and subscribe the Only in America podcast. And you can find us on, uh, what is our Instagram, John? 
Jesus. Only an American underscore so podcast. So professional. <laughs> He's still learning about yeah. the internet, so this has been a big step today. Awesome. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever used my camera. I didn't know it worked. <laughs> cool, man. Well, I appreciate um, you coming on, and uh, we'll talk See to you, you soon. Too. All right. Thanks, man.